My dear friends, in this evening we would like to to speak about the unchangeable truths about marriage and sexuality. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Word and the eternal truth in person, restored the original dignity of human nature in a most wonderful manner, also regarding the sexuality of the human being, which was created in a wonderful manner in the beginning. Through the fall in the sin, there had been wounded the dignity of human sexuality also, because of the hard-heartedness of the fallen man. There was introduced by Moses the divorce, and this was contrary to the absolute indissolubility which God had commanded. Also the Pharisees and scribes had known the divine truths about the beginning of the marriage. They nevertheless endeavored to receive from Jesus, as from a well-known and recognized teacher, the legitimation of the practice of the divorce, a practice which was already widely adopted in those times, perhaps out of pastoral reasons of the Pharisees and scribes. <clears throat> the first liars about the possibility of a contradiction between doctrine and pastoral practice were exactly the Pharisees and the scribes. They asked Jesus about the basic legitimacy of the divorce. Jesus proclaimed to them, and through his gospel he still proclaims, to the man of all times the ever-valid and unchangeable divine truth about the marriage. In the beginning it was not so. <clears throat> and I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another commits adultery. <clears throat> Jesus restored in all its seriousness and beauty the divine truth about marriage and human sexuality. Regarding this divine truth which Christ authoritatively proclaimed, he does not admit any sophisms, for example, annulment of the guilt because of psychological reasons, and he does not admit any exceptions with reference to an alleged pastoral praxis, perhaps restricted to the individual case, as the Pharisees it practiced. <clears throat> In his teaching, Jesus is going even so far as to proclaim anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This commandment of Christ is universally valid and means any lustful sexual desire of a person who is not the own legitimate spouse is in the intention in the eyes of God, already a sin against the Sixth Commandment. Jesus did not present his words as his own teaching, but as the teaching of the Father. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. 
Christ has restored solemnly the primordial truth about marriage and human sexuality, notwithstanding the hard-heartedness of many of his contemporaries and of the pastoral sophisms of the Pharisees and scribes. During the past 2,000 years, there have been in the life of the Church again and again attempts to reinterpret the crystal clear and uncompromising teaching of Christ on the indissolubility of marriage and on the iniquity of any sexual acts outside marriage, being such acts against the will of God. In the beginning of the Church there were the Gnostic and dissipate doctrines of Jezebel and of the Nicolaites, which the Apostle John has reprimanded in the churches of Pergamon and Theatira, in the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 2. <clears throat> A radical <clears throat> contradiction to the doctrine of Christ and to the teaching of the Apostles on marriage established Martin Luther calling the marriage a mere worldly thing. By this there was opened in the Christian Occident, in the theory and in the praxis, for the first time, basically the door to the divorce. The case of the double marriage of the Prince Philip of Hessen, which Luther approved. <coughs> In the Christian Orient, there have been also often a circumvention of the doctrine of Christ and marriage under the abuse of the concept of mercy, or out of fear and servilism towards the adulterous will of the powerful of this world. A few examples. There was the Greek Episcopate, since the reign of the Emperor Justinian I in the 6th century. They adopted divorce. All the Oriental Episcopates. Then the Frankish Episcopate in the case of the double marriage of the German Emperor Lothar II in the 8th century, the 9th century. And a particularly blunted Manner almost the entire episcopate of England in the time of King Henry VIII, with the exception of John Fisher. Furthermore, in the 19th century, in the beginning, furthermore, a part of the College of the Cardinals accepted divorce in the case of the invalid second marriage of the Emperor Napoleon. However, some courageous cardinals in those times in Paris protested against the divorce of Napoleon, of the invalid second marriage. And whereupon Napoleon forbade these courageous cardinals to wear the purple soutane, and he confiscated their wages, contrary to the politically correct cardinals who admitted the divorce of Napoleon, and therefore they could be dressed in purple. In this, the, uh, these courageous cardinals had to dress the black soutane who opposed the divorce. And so thus they were called the black cardinals. 
it is we hopefully we have in our time more black cardinals over the past several years there emerged within the church a party a group mainly composed of priests and even of some bishops and cardinals and this group has the aim to achieve a change in the praxis of the Roman Catholic Church in a praxis which is already 2,000 years old and according to which the reception of Holy Communion on behalf of divorced who live with a new partner and are civilly remarried is not possible because this would be against the will of God since the word of God says the adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. The mentioned group uses different arguments. The arguments which they use remind the typical attitude of the early Christian Gnostics for whom there could be definitely a contradiction between doctrine and praxis. Furthermore, their arguments remind the theory of Martin Luther concerning the salvific power only of the faith, regardless of the lifestyle, and even regardless of the repentance, and regardless of true amendment. You can be saved only by faith. In addition, the above-mentioned group inside the Church tries eventually to justify, by means of sophistic and cynical trickery, the sin of homosexual acts that shriek to heaven. Good qualities of a homosexual couple are adduced as a justification of the objectively sinful acts of their sodomitic cohabitation. Nevertheless, the truth of the word of God in the Holy Scripture remains fully valid in the same manner in our days as it was valid in the time of Jesus. And St. Paul says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, shall inherit the kingdom of God. The crystal clear doctrine of Christ about the absolute prohibition of divorce and hence of the grave sinfulness of remarriage after divorce the magisterium of the Church kept faithfully throughout 2,000 years in the same understanding and applied it consequently in the praxis in the pastoral life. The First Vatican Council taught definitively, I quote, if anyone says that it is possible that at some time Given the advancement of knowledge, a sense may be assigned to the dogmas propounded by the Church, which is different from what which the Church has understood and understands. Let him be anathema, excommunicated. So, the quotation of the Council. No Catholic who still takes seriously his baptismal vows should allow himself to be intimidated by these new sophistic teachers of fornication and adultery, even though, sad to say, some of these teachers hold the office of a bishop or of a cardinal.
Such teachers in ecclesiastical offices are certainly not disciples of Christ, but rather disciples of Moses or of Epicurus. This new doctrine and purported pastoral of marriage and sexuality take the Christians again back to the time before Christ, to the attitude of the hard-heartedness and of the blindness of the heart towards the original, holy and wise will of God. They take the Christians back to an attitude similar to that of the pagans who don't know God and his will. Alone, the life according to the original divine truths regarding marriage and sexuality and their practice, it means the truth in Jesus, which Christ has restored and the Church had unchangingly transmitted, only this will bring new life and that alone matters. In our days, the Holy Spirit admonishes us as well with the following words of the Holy Scripture, a quote from the Epistle of Ephesians, fourth chapter. These I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of the heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. To maintain the beauty of a life in marriage and family according to the will and the wisdom of God, it was necessary in all times to resist to the spirit of the world and of the flesh. Pope Paul VI said in a homily once, the church is always the same and she remains immutable according to the will of Christ, in opposition to the profane culture. A quotation of Paul VI. The Second Vatican Council warned the Catholics of our days against the scandal of a lifestyle which is contrary to the professed faith. A quote from Lumen Gentium number 14. If the Catholic faithful fail, moreover, to respond to that grace in thought, word, and deed, not only shall they not be saved, but they will be the more severely judged. Second Vatican Council. And Gaudium et Spes, 
43 states, I quote, this split between the faith which many profess and their lives deserves to be counted among the more serious errors of our age. Vatican II. Pope John Paul II spoke about the current danger of a separation between faith and morality in the life of a Catholic. I quote, the attempt to set freedom in opposition to truth and indeed to separate them radically is the consequence, manifestation, in consummation of another more serious and destructive dichotomy that which separates faith from morality. The separation represents one of the most acute pastoral concerns of the Church amid today's growing secularism. End of quotation. Formal and ritual remarriage of divorce signifies ultimately a kind of superstition. Indeed, such persons want to justify their new sinful union with an exterior performance of a ritual. With perspicacy, Chesterton detected the very root of the evil of the contradiction of the remarriage of divorce. I quote Chesterton, while free love seems to me a heresy, divorce does really seem to me a superstition. It is not only more of a superstition that free love, but much more of a superstition that strict sacramental marriage. And this point can hardly be made too plain. It is the partisans of divorce, not the defenders of marriage, who attach a stiff and senseless sanctity to a mere ceremony, apart from the meaning of the ceremony. It is our opponents, and not we, who hope to be saved by the letter of ritual instead of the spirit of reality. It is they who hold that vow or violation, loyalty or disloyalty, can all be disposed by mysterious and magic rite, remarriage, performed first in a law court and then in a church or a registry office. There is little difference between the two parts of the ritual, except that the new law court is much more ritualistic. But the plainest parallels will show anybody that all this is sheer barbarous credulity. It may or may not be superstition for a man to believe he must kiss the Bible to show he is telling the truth. It is certainly the most groveling superstition for him to believe that if he kisses the Bible, anything he says will come true. It would surely be the blackest and most benignant Bible worship to suggest that the mere kiss on the mere book alters the moral quality of perjury. Yet this is precisely what is implied in saying that formal remarriage alters the moral quality of conjugal infidelity. 
So Chesterton. A second ritual remarriage of divorced people represents a kind of sacrilege. As it was pointed out by Chesterton in this short sentence, I quote, the broad-minded are extremely bitter because a Christian who wishes to have several wives when his own promise bound him to one is not allowed to violate his vow at the same altar at which he made it. So Chesterton. When clergy stand up today for the admittance of divorced and civilly remarried Catholics to Holy Communion, they, in fact, solemnize their adultery and their sin against the Sixth Commandment. They give to such faithful the message that the divorce and the continuous violation of their sacramental bonds can become ultimately a positive reality. In other words, such clergy are liars. However, in order to cover their evident lie and contradiction to the word of God, they protect themselves with the mask of using the concept of divine mercy and sentimental expressions like to open a door or to be pastorally creative or to be open to the surprises of the Holy Spirit. To such a theoretical and practical behavior, one can apply the following statement of George Orwell, who said, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. St. John Paul II taught, I quote, if acts are intrinsically evil, a good intention or particular circumstances can diminish their evil, but they cannot remove the evil. They remain irremediably evil acts per se, and in themselves they are not capable of being ordered to God and to the good of the person. As for acts which are themselves sins, St. Augustine writes, like theft, fornication, blasphemy, who would, who would dare affirm that by doing them for good motives, they would no longer be sins. Or, what is even more absurd, that they would be sins that are justified. Consequently, circumstances or intentions can never transform an act intrinsically evil by virtue of its object into an act subjectively good or defensible as a choice. End of quotation of John Paul II. The same Pope left to the Church this most clear teaching regarding the authentic meaning of the merciful motherhood of Church. I quote him, the Church teaching, and in particular her firmness in defending the universal and permanent validity of the precepts prohibiting intrinsically evil acts, is not infrequently seen today as the sign of an intolerable 
intransigence, particularly with regard to the enormously complex and conflict-filled situations present in the modern life of the society of today. This intransigence is said to be in contrast with the Church's motherhood. The Church, one hears, is lacking in understanding and compassion. But the Church's motherhood can never, in fact, be separated from her teaching mission, teaching mission, mission, which she must always carry out as the faithful bride of Christ, who is the truth in person. As teacher, she never tires of proclaiming the moral norm. The Church is in no way the author or the arbiter of this norm. In obedience to the truth which is Christ, whose image is reflected in the nature and dignity of the human person, the Church interprets the moral norm and proposes it to all people of goodwill without concealing its demands of radicalness and perfection. In fact, genuine understanding and compassion must mean love for the person, for his true good, for his authentic freedom, and this does not result certainly from concealing or weakening moral truths, but rather from proposing it in its most profound meaning as an outpouring of God's eternal wisdom, which we have received in Christ, as a service to man, to the growth of his freedom. Still, a clear and forceful presentation of moral truths can never be separated from a profound and heartfelt respect the Church can never renounce the principle of truth and consistency, whereby she does not agree to call good evil and evil good. She must always be careful not to break the bruised reed or to quench the dimly burning wick. When it is a matter of the moral norms prohibiting intrinsic evil, there are no privileges there are no exceptions for anyone. It makes no difference whether one is the master of the world or the poorest of the poor on the face of the earth. Before the demands of morality, we are all absolutely equal. End of quotation of John Paul II. The new agnostic clerical group inside the church today strives that sexual acts outside a valid marriage and that even sexual acts against the nature of homosexual behavior may be ultimately in some cases practically accepted by the church. They invoke a welcoming pastoral style, abusing thereby, hereby, in a sentimental manner, this expression. The following luminous words of St. Pius X are fully applicable to this topic. I quote him, Catholic doctrine tells us that the primary duty of charity does not lie in the toleration of false ideas, however, since they may be, nor in the theoretical or practical indifference towards the errors and vices in which we see our brethren plunged, but in the zeal 
for their intellectual and moral improvement. Catholic doctrine further tells us that love for our neighbor flows from our love for God, who is the Father to all and goal of the whole human family, and in Jesus Christ, whose members we are, to the point that in doing good to others we are doing good to Jesus Christ. Any other kind of love is sheer illusion, sterile and fleeting. So end of quotation of Pius X. And so I end with a quotation of Robert Benson, who wrote in his book The Paradoxes of Catholicism. The Catholic Church is and always will be violent and intransigent when the rights of God are in question. She will be absolutely ruthless, for example, towards heresy. For heresy affects not personal matters on which charity may yield, but a divine right on which there must be no yielding. Yet, simultaneously, she will be infinitely kind towards the heretic, since a thousand human motives and circumstances may come in and modify his responsibility. At a word of repentance, she will readmit his person into her treasury of souls when he repents and confesses. But she will not readmit his heresy into her treasury of wisdom. She exhibits meekness towards him and violence towards his error, since the Church is human, but her truth and mission is divine. Thank you for your attention.